This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. I want to jump on in and, uh, and finish the series, Do Hard Things. Y'all ready? We are on, uh, we're on week four, and um, you can follow along on your service guide. Uh, on your note sheet, you can log into the Version Bible app, and you'll find uh, the notes in there as well. Let me stop my screen from rotating. That would be great. I want to welcome everybody online. Anybody, anybody seen the Facebook Live video? I've been trying to monitor it this morning. Some people have been watching. I know Ms. Donna Howell just left a comment. She couldn't be here this morning. I was so glad to be able to watch online. So, uh, so anyway, everything is running live and running great. As far as do hard things, how have you been challenged with that whole idea of doing hard things? I wanted to give a, a, a quick shout out to, um, I know the worship team has stepped out for a second, but to my, my good friend, Michael Blackwell, who's playing drums, and he do good today. Michael called me and, uh, two days ago, and he said he wanted to give me a t- his testimony of his opportunity to do hard things this week. And I thought it was really something, because he said it's kind of the opposite of what you're talking about. You know, he said, every, you've been coming from the perspective of stepping out and doing something you wouldn't normally do, and he goes, I did. Uh, and, and I thought that that was it, but it turned out there was more. He said what happened was he found out of a job opening at another company, and he went over for an interview this week. And it turned out it looked like he could do this job. It looked like everything was going well. He's hitting it off with these guys in the interview. He's going to be making almost double what he's making now. Isn't that right, Michael Blackwell? I hope it's okay I'm telling your story. And looked like he was going to be making almost double what he's making now, and he realized how much he was going to be working. He realized that he wasn't going to see his family so much, and he realized he probably wouldn't be able to play drums anymore on Sunday morning. He looked at the guys before the interview was over and said, guys, I can't take the job, and walked out. He said, I thought I'd done the hard thing the first time and stepping out and taking a risk and stepping out from a job I was comfortable with into something new. Then I did the hard thing by turning down almost double my salary. That's awesome. And he said he told them, he told them straight up, I, I won't be able to spend the time my family want to. And he said, and I play drums on Sunday morning at my church, and I just can't walk away from that. How awesome, how incredible is that? So do hard things. Quick, I'm just going to give you the points from the last couple weeks real quick. We talked week one, why do the hard things? Sometimes it's the only choice to move forward, right? Sometimes we have to make a hard decision to move forward, but we never move forward in our life because we won't make a hard decision. Secondly, the reward is worth the sacrifice. Great things never happen because we take the easy way out, right? Number three, last thing on week one, we do hard things to prove our trust in God. As much as we may try to control and manipulate our environment and the circumstances so things go our way, it just doesn't work out that way many times, right? We've got to step out. We've got to do something uncomfortable, something hard, and prove our trust in God. Week two, we talked about two things. Number one, doing the hard things that go beyond your comfort zone, those invisible barriers in our lives that make us feel so comfortable and secure, Going outside our comfort zone, we talked about Nehemiah. He wasn't remotely qualified for what God called him to do, but he stepped into it anyway. And secondly, we talked about going beyond what's expected, how we live in this good enough society. But the Bible says that we do everything in our life as a worship unto our king. And so we should go the extra mile. We should go above and beyond because we're not doing it just for a paycheck or to please our boss. We're doing everything that we do. We're doing it to please God. Amen? And then last week, week three, we talked about two more hard things. We talked about the hard things you can't do on your own, because we weren't meant to live an easy life, were we? Of course not. We were meant to do something significant, and things significant, they're hard, right? It takes time. It takes investment. 
And I was asking, when's the last time you dreamed of something big? If you can figure out what you're supposed to do on your own, if you can figure out how to make it happen, then it's probably not God. And the second thing we talked about were the hard things that don't pay off immediately. And we just said that. Great things don't happen because we take the easy way out. We've got to learn to be faithful and to persevere and to stick with things even when they get difficult. We don't give up serving, giving, investing. And we talked about how sometimes the things that trip us up the most are those daily, weekly, monotonous things we have to do over and over again. And we don't see the benefit of it right now, but we know that those little things, eventually a little seed can feed a whole nation, right? So we got to stick with it. So I'm going to close today, and we're going to talk part four, do hard things even when it goes against the crowd. Doing hard things even when it goes against the crowd. And so you may think, well, what does that mean? You think of the crowd, you immediately think of people. Well, I would say first and foremost, I think it's just the norm. I mean, no, sometimes it's hard to do things that go against the norm in our society, in our culture. Sometimes it's hard to go against the norm in our family, with our friends, in our workplace. What does this mean? Going against the crowd. We're talking about what's expected. Sometimes that's the norm, isn't it? Going against just what's expected. Going against our culture, our society. Doing what's right, even in the face of opposition. And that can be particularly, particularly hard today, can't it? Doing what's right in the face of opposition, even as people stand against us. So I'm going to jump right in today. I've each week tried to give you a, a Bible story, right, to go along with the whole idea of do hard things. I, I asked Sean, I was like, is it weird doing a Bible story each week? Is that a little elementary? But sometimes it's good to go back to children's church and to get back into the Bible stories again. And I was thinking about who I could uh, give an example of that did hard things in the Bible that went against the crowd and against the norm. And so this week, I actually picked, guess who I picked from Daniel chapter 1. Oh, wow. And y'all can go ahead. If you're, if you're turning your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel chapter 1. But um, as usual, I want to give a little background here for just a minute. We know that Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we know that we, they, were among, they, were actually, um, they were actually Jewish nobility. And they were of the tribe of Judah. And we know that Babylon comes in and they conquer Israel, right? They take Jerusalem. And we know that Babylon, they were carried off. Daniel and the, and the other three are carried off to Babylon. Babylon is found today, it's found 59 miles south of Baghdad. The ruins of it are there today. And so they're carried off and they are brought into the service of King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And the Bible says that they were chosen, and they, they were four that were chosen among, we don't know how many, but there were others. But these four were chosen, it said, for their intellect and for their beauty. In other words, they were smart and good looking, okay? They had the whole package. So the Babylonians may have gone in and killed men, women, and children and carried off slaves and all this stuff from Israel, but they kept some of the ones that, were the, that seemed to be the smartest, the brightest, and the best looking, right? And they started training them to serve in the court of the king. The king wanted to surround himself by these smart, good-looking people, right? So, um, so we know Daniel, they, they, what they do, they start educating them in this training. They start educating them in the ways of the Babylonians. They, they, they probably had to 
do some learning of the language. They had, to, they had to learn about the customs of the Babylonian people. They had to learn about their gods and all these different things at that time. And they tried to, they, they tried to push the, the, the Jewish side out of them. They tried to, and we don't know how young they were. It says they were young men. Many believe they may have even been what we would consider to be teenagers. And so they're sitting here trying to train them and push out their past and train them for this new culture, Right? training them to be Babylonians, to serve the Babylonian king and the Babylonian empire. And they even changed their names. We know that Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar. His companions were given the name Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And, you know, it's kind of funny because starting in chapter 2, they always called Daniel by his Jewish name, and they called the other three by their Babylonian names. Kind of interesting. I don't know exactly why that is. But anyway, so if we look at at chapter 1, here you got these guys, these boys who are probably probably teenagers, they've been ripped out of their families, been ripped out of their land, carried off to this new country, and forced into this new position. As far as they were concerned, they were probably slaves, even though they were treated a lot better than the others. They had been ripped away from everything they knew, right? They were trying to drive it out of them. They probably had family members that were killed and murdered, you know, in in this whole thing. And here, suddenly, they find themselves in Daniel chapter 1 in the court of the king. And it says in verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So Daniel, how many of y'all would have been Daniel? Would have been the first one to speak up. Wait, excuse me, I I can't eat that, right? There's Daniel speaking up. But what you've got to understand in this is they're trying to give Daniel, they're trying to fatten them up and give them the best that they can. They're feeding them the king's food. Sounds awesome, right? The problem is the Jewish people lived by certain dietary laws. There were certain things that God had said you could eat and not eat. They had a certain diet that God told them to live by, right? So they're looking at all the things that are being served, and they're going, well, my goodness, there's not a whole lot that we're supposed to eat here, and all we can really eat is vegetables. And so that's where you find in verse 9, it says, now God brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you endanger my head before the king. He's going, why would I do this? Why would I meet this request to not give you this good fattened food to fatten you up? Why would would I do this? The king ordered this. He's going to have my head if you're not at the same level as all the other boys. And then in verse 11, so Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. He basically says, look, if you'll just try this for 10 days, we'll then trust you to do whatever you feel is right. Right? Right? said, compare us after 10 days to the other ones. So, um, so he consented in this matter, manner and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portions of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were given to drink and gave them vegetables. As for the four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, he's going to examine them, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. 
Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. We know that these four were chosen because they were the best. It says in verse 20, In all manners of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. That's who he trusted in, was the, astro- the magicians and the astrologers. He found these four young men to be ten times better than any of them. These outsiders from another land who wouldn't eat his food. Does that make sense? If you jump down, I'm going I'm to jump down further and just continue on with this for just a minute. In Daniel chapter 2, if you go down to verse 48, it says, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And the chief, administ- and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But da- Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Things went in their favor, right? Because they honored God and did they were supposed to do in the face of opposition. Did the opposition end? <laughs> no. These four are still in a foreign land where everything goes against their upbringing and their ancestry and what they've been taught and, and the law of their one God that they served. Because, you know, we know the story. If you go down to chapter 3, we're not going to read from it right now. But, and we know in chapter 3, we don't know Dan- why Daniel isn't mentioned in chapter 3. We know that he was a dignitary. Who knows? He could have been traveling on official state business, whatever it was. For some reason, he's not mentioned in chapter 3, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are mentioned, Right? And this is the story that they're famous for. We know that, that the king makes this order. He makes this statue and basically says, if, anybody, if you bow down to any other god besides the king, because we know back then the king was considered a god, right? If you bow before any other, any other god um, besides the king and his, his golden statue, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, right? They wouldn't do it. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace and what happened? The king looks in and sees somebody else standing there with those three. He said he looked like the son of God. And he brought them out and made an order that nobody's to speak against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Talk about standing against the crowd. We've never experienced anything like this. If you go on down to chapter 6, King Darius makes Daniel one of the three governors over all of Babylon. So we got a new king now. This new king recognizes Daniel and the favor of God on his life, and makes him one of the three governors over all of Babylon. I'm just going to read the, just three more scriptures from this. In, in chapter 6, in verse 3, it says, Then this Daniel distinguished himself above all the governors and satraps. Uh, uh, governors, there was three governors. Satraps were governors over, um, over provinces. Okay, So he was even over them. Because an excellent spirit was in him, in Daniel. And the king gave, him, gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Now, this didn't go over well because in verse 4 it says, So the governors and satraps sought to find charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They realized he was one of three governors. Now he might be the head guy over the entire kingdom. This outsider from another land who serves one weird God, who's getting all the favor of the king, right? Have you know, that doesn't go real well. In verse 4, um, so the governors and satraps sought to found, find charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of politician today? Man, I wish we could have Daniel. No fault could be found in him. Praise the Lord. Man. But we see the same things happening here that are happening today. So these men said, 
We shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. They were like, okay, we can't find anything wrong with him. So what we'll do is we'll find a way to make him break the law of his God. We don't think he'll do it. So what they do, they, they, they trick the king, King Darius. King Darius didn't serve the God of the Jewish people, right? But he loved Daniel. So these men, these governors and these satraps, they go in and they trick the king basically into making another kind of law like we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, basically saying, if anybody prays to any other god besides the king for 30 days, they're going to be fed to hungry lions, right? And the king's like, well, yeah, that sounds good, <laughs> right? Good to go. And so they immediately, they already had their spies watching Daniel, trying to find fault in him. So their spies were watching that very day. And what did they find? Daniel still prayed three times that day before God, right? With his windows wide open, the Bible says, the whole world to see, he prayed to God. We know that they went and reported to the king. The Bible says the king worked all day trying to find a way to get Daniel out of this. That he didn't sleep that entire night. He realized what he had done. The next day, Daniel's thrown to hungry lions, right? He stays there overnight again. And we know that God sent an angel that shut the mouths of the lions and saved him, right? Talk about going against the culture and going against the norms. Anybody ever dealt with anything like that? I think we've dealt with going against the culture and going against the norm, but I, I, don't, I, don't think that, I don't think that we have found it particularly hard yet. I think we're seeing increased challenges in our culture today, aren't we? We're seeing a lot of challenges in our culture today. But this, I mean, this is just unreal what Daniel and these three young men, other young men, went through. Going against the culture, going against the norm, we do something hard with excellence. How many of you know there will always be somebody to stand against us? There's always somebody to stand against us. We have to make sure, and this is what I really got thinking about. I think the Lord showed me this this week. We've got to make sure that we're standing for the right things. You know, I think more than ever, it's important that we choose our battles wisely. I think it's important that we make them count. I think that we spend all of our time arguing over petty things in our culture today. Wouldn't you all agree? We'll spend all of our time arguing We'll spend all of our time arguing over whether it's better to be an Apple guy or an Android guy. Who cares? The world's going to hell, right? We'll fight and fight and fight, 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 fight. And then we got no fight when it comes to something that matters. But that's what we do. Just look at social media for just one minute. We argue over stupid, petty things. We don't, we don't give second thought to putting a negative, somebody... I know that if I put up there, hey, went and saw this movie today, really enjoyed it, somebody's going to be like, I saw it, I hated it. I'm about, Jeez, man. Yeah, right? We give no thought to arguing and interjecting over little petty things that don't matter. We've got to make sure that we are fighting for the right things, that when we go against the crowd, that it's God-inspired, that it's something that God has called us to because then we know that we've got the creator of the universe with us. Amen? And I was thinking about this, and I want to kind of detour just to a little bit different perspective for a minute. I think the problem is we know that no matter what we say and no matter what we do, there is going to be somebody standing against us. And I think sometimes that stops us from stepping out and doing things that we know that we should do. And I think this is becoming increasingly more and more of a challenge in, the, in, in this day and age, especially over the last 10, 15 years. It's getting worse and worse and worse where we don't want to speak up about anything right? We don't want to find ourselves in a conflict. We don't want to deal with confrontation. 
That's why I've become very careful about what I put on social media anymore. I don't want to get caught in some kind of weird argument. I'm, 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 not, I'm not going there. I'm going to worry about what really matters. Amen? Our society today, in the name of tolerance, is becoming less and less tolerant. It's becoming less tolerant of conviction and belief, especially in regards to Christianity. They're much more tolerant of almost any other religion of the world. Wouldn't you agree? I think increasingly often, simply living life God's way, according to his word, is doing the hard things that go against the crowd. Even in the church. And this hit me yesterday. I added this in last night. Even in the church, I think that we've allowed sin to become so acceptable that sometimes when we do something right, that we know is right, people will say, that's so small. You think that really matters? What's the big deal? You think, you think God really cares? And it's like, well, the Bible says he does, right? But it's no big deal. Doesn't God have bigger fish to fry? Right? I think on the flip side, how many of you know there's always an extreme? Right? There's always an extreme. Our culture places huge value on opinions and rights, doesn't it? I'm entitled to my opinion. I have a right to this. I have a right to that. Right? And I think everybody we see today, everybody wants a cause to defend, a cause to fight for, something to argue, something to stand on behalf of. Right? Everybody's got their little soapbox to stand on today. And I think the problem, one of the biggest problems in this is that this spills over into the church. And I think too often, I think that our opinions and our feelings have muddied our convictions and our beliefs. Does that make any sense? Our opinions, what we read on social media, jumping on the bandwagon, all of a sudden starts muddying our convictions and our beliefs. And so we start doing things and saying things and fighting for things in the name of conviction. When is it really? Does this make any sense? Everybody's staring at me blank faces now. Let me give you some examples. Say you grew up in a church. You were growing up. You were raised to, to, with the belief that tattoos are a sin. Right? And somebody showed you in the book of Leviticus a scripture that says don't put a mark on your body even though in any other case you would have said, that's the old covenant, bro, that's passed away. But we jump back to Leviticus and go, that says don't put any mark on your body, right? And so we're convinced by conviction now that anybody who's got a tattoo on their body, until they have it removed, they can't possibly be serious with God. Does that make any sense? I think we muddy these things. I, in the Spirit-filled church, well, I just have a revelation of the Holy Ghost and the gifts of the Spirit. I just feel so bad for all those other Christians out there who don't have the true revelation and can't do anything great for God. Or what about, how, many, how about, did you, some of you know that you're sitting next to a Republican? And some of you are sitting next to a Democrat? And some of you are sitting next to an Independent? And some of you are standing next to somebody who's never voted a day in their life and doesn't intend to ever vote a day in their life. But we get this idea that, well, surely everybody votes my way. My way my way's God's way. That's God's man. 
God, I'm voting for God's man. No, Christian can't vote, right? Our things start muddying our conviction, and we start expressing them as convictions, and we start standing against everybody else. Now we got a problem. People say, well, whose side are you on anyway? Because I'm on God's side, brother. God is on my side. God's on my side. The Bible says if God is for me, then who can possibly be against me? If God is standing for me, who can come against me? God is on my team. I'm here, and God is with me. Right? My problem comes in Joshua. You look at Joshua chapter 5, we see that they're about to take Jericho. And I've read this before. Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man. Notice there's a capital M there. Is there up there? We're not on Joshua chapter 5. It says, a man with a capital M stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his, capital H, his hand. He knew this wasn't a normal man, okay? And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. Joshua standing there with the children of God, and some believe it was God himself, appears before him. Are you for us or for our enemies? He said, no. Wait, wait. You're, you're for us, right? No. Are you for our enemies? No. Who are you for? No. As a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So, so what you're saying is you didn't come for us? No. And you didn't come for our enemies? No. What are we seeing that happens next? Joshua fell on the earth and worshiped and said, what does the Lord say? Why? Joshua realized he was trying to make sure God was on his side. That's a problem. No, 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 no. The question is not, is God on my side? Let me, let, me, let me tell you, God's political affiliation is not the same as yours. It's not. And this is in your notes. This is something that just dropped in me. God is not subject to your personal opinions or even your beliefs. They change. How many of you look back 10 years and go, why did I believe that? Why did I have this whole mindset toward God? Our, they change along the way as God grows us up. God is not subject to our opinions, and he is not subject to our convictions or our beliefs. So people try and always pull us on a side, though. Whose side are you on anyway? Democrat or Republican? Are you on the side of men? Are you on the side of women's rights? Black, white, Hispanic, American Indian, gay, straight? What about the conservationists? Right? Uh, in the church. Are you pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Right? Whose side are you on anyway? I'm on God's side. That's got to be our answer. I'm on God's side. We've got to stop trying to get God on our side, and we've got to align ourselves with him and make sure. For Lord's sake, make sure we're on his side. Right? Here's the reality. When we are on God's side, nobody can stand against us. It makes it easy to stand against the crowd, even in difficult times. When God's standing next to us, <laughs> that changes things. When we attempt to get God on our side, we start saying things like, well, God wants me to be happy. I deserve better. 
I could probably tell you six or eight marriages I've seen break up over that statement. I deserve better. What happens when you say that? You just added God to your argument. You just pulled God into it. You brought him in. You brought him down to your level. You pulled him to your side and said, he agrees with me. I deserve better, cause, and, and, and he agrees. We pulled him down to our level, put him on our side, and used him for our purpose. When we attempt to get God on our side, when correction is brought to us, we say things like, well, my life is okay because God knows my heart. We just brought God down to our level and pulled him over to our side. God knows my heart. I'm okay. Does that make sense? When we attempt to get God on our side, we'll begin using Scripture against people. We brought God down to our level, put him on our side, and used him for our purpose. By the way, that's really bad in marriage. It's really, really bad. Hey, how many husbands have said, I told my wife what the Bible says, her responsibility. Okay, please don't ever do that. That is none of your business, right? Don't go, don't go using the Bible against people. Let's take care of what God, the Bible says about us, right? When we put God on our side, this is the last thing that kind of hit me. I was thinking about when we try to put God on our side, suddenly our interpretation of the Bible is whatever we want it to be. It stops confronting the sin in our lives and begins to be used as an excuse. I had a couple of examples of that. Because this is where it gets really dangerous. This is where you get organizations like Westboro Baptist Church and like the Ku Klux Klan. Put up my picture there, Billy. These are recent, these are recent pictures from Westboro Baptist Church and the Ku Klux Klan. These are, these are from the news in the last couple of weeks. This is why you can get organizations like this that consider them to be faith-based, God-centered organizations. Because they had their own ideas and they pulled God to their side and said, he's with us. Baloney. That's the problem. You're not on God's side. You've tried to pretend like he's on yours. Does that make sense? It's all because they tried to bring God into alignment with what they thought and what they wanted instead of humbling themselves and coming in alignment with what he is, of who he is and what he wants. These people would say that they are doing, everything, they do, everything they're doing is for God. They say that. And, that they, and they would say, we're fighting, doing the hard things, going against the crowd. And really all they're doing is giving the body of Christ a black eye. We can see through this how easy it is to be deceived if we aren't humbly walking with the Lord, and if we try to go it alone. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. I'm doing the right thing. Are you? This is where I started making that point. We got to make sure we're fighting for the right things. We got to make sure that we make it count. We got to make sure that we're on God's side. 2 John 1, 9 says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So we've got to be careful what we're fighting for, and we have to be careful what we fight against. We don't ever want to have someone fight against us. We don't ever want someone to have to fight against us. You understand what I'm saying? When they're doing something for the Lord and moving forward, we don't want to get caught up. Remember I talked about change is a hard thing because it takes us out of our comfort zone? Sometimes we've got to open up our minds. We've got to be open to the Holy Spirit and his leading, being careful what we're fighting for and what we're fighting against. 
On the other hand, we walk with the Lord and do the hard things he's called us to do. There will always be opposition. However, we can be confident in him that we don't have to take persecution personally. Because John 15, 18, and 19, Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Unfortunately, as Christians, when you do the hard things that are right, sometimes you find yourself standing even against family, and, and I think the really hard part is you find yourself standing against the church. I mean, you know, many times, of course, I'm not talking about church at the harvest, but how do you know sometimes the church is the most critical organization out there sometimes? we got to be careful, folks. I have two other examples today I want to read to you right quick as we begin to wrap up. And um, my first example, my first example in honor of last, I think it was Tuesday, being the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation is Martin Luther. How many of you know of Martin Luther? I, I, I knew the story and all this. I went back and refreshed myself on it this week, and I actually wrote out my notes. And so here's Martin Luther. So last Tuesday was the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his, 30, his 95 theses to the door of the church in Germany. Before the Reformation, which was in 1517, pretty much all Christians in Europe were Roman Catholic, and they had been since the 4th century. During the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church dominated all of European civilization. It ruled everything. Only through the Catholic Church could you get salvation. The Catholic priests played a part in every person's life, baptizing them, marrying them, hearing their confessions, and providing last rites. The church provided all social services providing alms to the poor, running orphanages, and they were the sole providers of all education. Only the church priests could read and translate the Bible because it was only written in Latin, and that's the way the church liked it. They owned, the church owned one-third of all the land in Europe, which made it the most powerful economic force on the continent. The Pope claimed authority over all the kings of Europe as the successor of the Roman Empire. The Roman Catholic Church was the most powerful institution in the world and was undone by one man. Martin Luther was studying to become an attorney, they say, when he was struck by lightning. And he cried out to God, basically said, if you save me, I'll become a monk. And I'll serve you all the days of my life. He was Roman Catholic, right? Well, two weeks later, he became a Catholic monk. So... Here he is, two weeks later, he withdraws from university, he joins a monastery, and about two years later, he was sent on a trip uh, by the monastery to Rome, and he found himself very concerned with the state of affairs in Rome, where the Vatican was, right? He sees all this corruption, he sees all these people that call themselves Christians doing all these crazy things, the church doesn't look the way he sees it should look in scripture, and then he sees corruption within the church itself. It says that he was also obsessed with his own sinfulness. It says that he kept confessing the same sins over and over again, trying to get forgiveness from God. Anyway, uh, he became a teacher at Wittenberg University in Germany. And during this time, this is where he read Hebrews 10.38 that says, The just shall live by faith. And he was quoted after this saying, Salvation comes through faith. Not good works, not through prayer, not through fasting, vigils, pilgrimages, relics, giving to the poor, the sacraments, or any action that a person can take. We can't ever be good enough through our actions to merit salvation. We can only have faith. That's a huge revelation for a Roman Catholic priest. 
Shortly after this, the Pope wanted to expand St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican. And so a friar was sent, friars were sent all over to get money. A friar comes to Wittenberg University, where Martin Luther is still teaching, and basically he begins selling uh, indulgences. Anybody heard of indulgences? He's selling indulgences. Basically, if you gave a certain amount of money to the church, and I put it down, it was about three marks, about half a year's wages. If you gave three marks to the church, to this friar that came through, then he would give you a piece of paper that was blessed by the Pope, promising to shorten your time in purgatory. Sounds like today, doesn't it? Basically, you say they were selling get-out-of-hell-free cards, right? This whole ordeal angers Luther, so he ends up sitting down and writing what we know today as the 95 Theses, and he nailed them to the door of the church for all to see on October 31st, 1517. This document contained 95 statements speaking out against indulgences and the corruption in the church. Supposedly, he also mailed a copy to his archbishop. One of the church rituals... um, one, I'm sorry, one of his main statements was that Christians were saved only through faith in the grace of God and that church rituals didn't have the power to save. That didn't go over very good. He also stated that the Pope and the church were infallible. They could make mistakes. He claimed that the priesthood was a human invention and that Christians didn't need priests to receive the grace of God. He began teaching what he called the priesthood of all believers. His statements went viral. Why did his statements go viral? Because the printing press had just came out, had just come out. Some people got his little theses and ran hundreds and thousands of copies of it. And it went everywhere. This started a revolution. They tried to arrest him, but his followers helped him to escape and put him into hiding. While he was in hiding, he translated the Bible from Latin into common German in only 11 weeks. For many hundreds of years, the Bible had been translated in no other language but Latin. Now it was duplicated on a printing press by the thousands, and for the first time, you could have your own Bible to read. This started a revolution, and things got pretty crazy from there, and people began splitting off from the Roman Catholic Church and began forming many of the denominations that we know of today, the first of which was the Lutheran Church. This was the Protestant Reformation. Everybody learn a little something today? Sometimes what God calls us to do is unpopular, and sometimes it's wildly unpopular. Firstly, we've got to make sure we're fighting for the right things. But when people are standing against what God has called us to do, we have to draw closer to him than ever, and we've got to lean on his grace. Amen? And this becomes even more complicated when it's people that we love and trust, especially when it's friends, family, church members, whatever it is. It's going to take perseverance. It's going to take endurance. It's going to take trusting God to see it through to the end. And I want to close with one last story. There was somebody else named after Martin Luther. There was another man named Martin Luther King. And he had a son named Martin Luther King Jr. And in an interview in uh, 1957 with his father, Martin Luther King Sr. said that he and his son were both named for Martin Luther in honor of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther King Jr. was born in Atlanta, Georgia on January 15, 1929. The boy became the third member of his family to serve as pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, following the footsteps of his grandfather and his father. He followed the same educational path of his father and grandfather. He got his education in Georgia's segregated public schools, from which he graduated at 15, received his bachelor's from Atlanta's Morehouse College, went on to study theology at Crozer Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, an integrated school where he was elected president of a senior class, although it was 
comprised primarily of white students. In 1953, he completed his residence for his doctorate. In December 1955, he led a 382-day boycott of Montgomery's segregated public bus system because African Americans were regu regulated, relegated to the back of the bus and had to give up their seats if a white person wanted it. So many black people lived in poverty or near poverty. Because of this, few could afford automobiles, and public buses were essential for them for traveling to, from, work, and elsewhere. During the boycott, King became a target for segregationists. Personal abuse, arrest, and even bombing of his home made clear the risks that he'd be taking if he continued his work for the civil rights movement. In 1957, the movement spawned a new organization, the Christian, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, to focus on achieving civil rights. King was elected president. Um, the organization declared its goals were not just those of one race, but of all Christian people. During the next 11 years, he would speak over 2,500 times at public events, traveling uh, over 6 million miles. He wrote articles and five books to spread the message further. In 1963, he was the leader in a massive civil rights protest in Birmingham, Alabama, that drew the attention of all America and the entire world to the discrimination of African Americans and their demands for change. He was arrested during the protest, and he penned letters from a Birmingham jail, which became a manifesto for the civil rights revolution, and placed King among America's renowned essayists, such as Henry David Thoreau and Wolf Ralph Waldo Emerson. During the rally at the nation's capital in 1963, King delivered his most famous speech, known as the I Have a Dream speech, from the steps of the Abraham Lincoln Memorial. His oratory and impassioned drive, not only for equality under the law, but for true understanding acceptance of all races and creeds, um, led Time Magazine to select him as Man of the Year in 1963. The following year, the Nobel Prize Committee in Stockholm awarded him the Nobel Prize of $54,000, which he would donate to the furtherance of the civil rights movement. In the spring of 68, he traveled to Memphis, Tennessee, where the majority of the city's black sanitation workers were striking since February 12th for increased job safety measures, better wages, benefits, and union recognition. On the evening of April 4th, King and some colleagues stepped on out of the Lorraine Motel while leaving to get dinner. When King stepped onto the balcony in front of his room, he was shot and killed at 39 years old. One of the greatest examples we've had in our time, in our lifetimes, of somebody going against the crowd and doing something great for God. We've got to do the hard things today. We've got to trust God and those that he brings along our path on the way. We've got to know that anything of significance takes time, it takes endurance, it takes perseverance, and it can be very unpopular, right? We've got to begin to step out of our comfort zones, go beyond what's expected, making sure that we don't go it alone, but trusting God, knowing that we won't see immediate results. Things aren't going to be easy, but we've got to step out anyway and do something great, do something hard for God. Amen? We've got to start with the small, monotonous things that God has put in our life and be faithful. We've got to be faithful in the small things and know that it's God who promotes us to do the big things in life. Amen? Let's stand up together. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we need to wrap up, but guys, I, I don't want to miss out on an opportunity for you to do the hard thing and get things right in your life today. Every head bowed, who in here would say, I have not done the hard thing in this life and surrendered my life to Jesus? You find yourself in a position where we're talking about doing these hard things for God, but 
But maybe you're looking at your own life and you're examining it and going, man, I, I haven't done the bare minimum yet. I haven't surrendered who I am. I haven't surrendered my way and my thinking and my dreams and my desires. You recognize that, man, I can be so selfish. I haven't been seeking God's direction in my life. I've been trying to do it on my own. The first hard thing we need to do in life is say, I give up. I give up. I'm so done doing it on my own. I'm so done trying to make my own way. I'm so done trying to make things happen. I'm going to surrender my life to God. I'm going to trust Him, and I'm going to allow Him to do the heavy lifting on my behalf. I'm going to lean on Him, and I'm going to trust Him regardless of what my eyes see and what my ears hear, and I'm going to know that because I'm on His side, that He'll always have my back, that He'll always be with me, that I'm walking in His steps, that we're walking together hand in hand, and it doesn't matter what the world brings against me. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter how unpopular it is with my culture or even with my family or with my friends. I can do whatever he's called me to do because I'm with him. I think that's the question today. Are you with God? You may have said the whole, your whole life, you may have always thought God is on my side. My question to you this day is are you on God's side? I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out. With every eye closed, if that's you and you would say, I've got to surrender my life to Jesus today, I want you to lift your hand. Lift it so I can see it. Yes, who else? Because I'm done living life for myself. I'm going to do this hard thing, and I'm going to get my life in alignment. That's three. Anybody else? You may be online watching live. We just invite you. We're all going to pray together, and we invite you to join in with us. It doesn't matter if you're here in the building with us or where you are, because it's not about us. It's about Him. And His Spirit is right there with you wherever you are in this moment. It doesn't matter if you're watching it weeks later. Surrender your life to Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're invading people's personal space right now. I thank you, Lord. It's a good thing when you get in our face sometimes. And it's not in anger. You're there saying, I want you. I want you with me. We're going to pray this prayer together. And the Bible says, if you mean it with all your heart, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord of your life and you believe on him, the Bible says that you are saved. You're trans, uh, transported out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. You're made a new creation. Your spirit comes alive, is born again. We just invite you. Pray this prayer with us. Mean it with all your heart. Let's all say it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he did the hard things, that he paid the highest price, and he did it for me. He didn't give up halfway through. He went all the way on my behalf. He paid the price for my sin and my failures. And Jesus, I surrender to you today. I confess you as the Lord of my life. I will serve you from this day forward lead me and guide me I want to fulfill your purpose I want to fulfill your plan for my life Holy Spirit fill me empower me to be everything to do everything that you've called me to do I will walk with you from this day forward until my last breath in Jesus name Amen everybody give the Lord a hand this morning 
If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277.